to Challenging Paradigm X. Is the assessment system in education beneficial for the development of pupils and students? What are the key skills for success in life? And how do boxes we put people into influence behavior? My guest today is Markus Orlovsky. Markus is passionate about education and helping young people to find their path. Originally has a background in finance, real estate and technology and is also a chartered accountant. He was heavily involved in designing and building new schools in the UK and after having worked on 300 new school projects he realized that a change in attitude from both teachers and students is necessary for transformation. He's worked with nearly 100,000 students, generally drawn from those less likely to achieve with astonishing success. The social enterprise Marcus founded empowers students to be inquisitive and seek out their own pathways. In his spare time, Marcus hosts a number of TEDx events, has spoken at many, and is asked to speak at major conferences globally. Marcus had a major stroke seven years ago. He delivered the opening keynote for the National Association of Head Teachers annual conference only 14 days later. So if you're interested in our conversation on education and unfolding potential, stay tuned. Hello, welcome Marcus. It's a great pleasure to have you here today. Please introduce yourself. Who are you and what do you do? So I'm Marcus, Marcus Orlovsky. I'm here in Wimbledon, Southwest London. And right now, I guess I work in the world of education. And you know, when you say you work in the world of education, people say, so are you a teacher? Nope. Are you a parent? No. So why do you work in the world of education? Because I think we can all do our bit to improve the life chances of young people through education. So what exactly, like in which direction do you work in education? In well, which field? Well, you see, that's that's what becomes tricky. So I, I've, the background to this is I think in my country especially, we have a lot of young people who are being taught stuff in schools and they don't know why they need to learn this. And actually, a lot of their teachers don't know what you can do with it anyway. And then because we have this crazy testing system, at the end of a few years, we sit students down to pass exams to see what they can remember of stuff which they didn't know why they need to learn by teachers who don't know what you can do with it anyway. So is it any surprise that for some students, especially those in less affluent or less gifted communities, they tend not to do very well? I, I personally don't think it's a surprise. <laughs> it's not a surprise. And you know, the really sad thing is that in the UK, a heck of a lot of teachers have only had one job, which is being teachers. And, and the route which they've gone through tends to be doing okay at school, not necessarily brilliant. A few have done brilliantly, but the vast majority have done okay. Not so badly, they've been thrown out. Then they've gone to university, an okay university, and they've done okay at university. And then they've become teachers. And so, you know, whilst they were at university, their knowledge of the world grew. And as they have become teachers and the longer they spend in teaching, the more their currency of the world starts decreasing. And, you know, a lot of teachers just coordinate and meet teachers. A lot of teachers are married to teachers. So the whole bubble of this peculiar teaching fraternity gets stronger and stronger as a bubble. Um, and I don't think there's enough permeation between teachers and everybody else in the world. And Xerxes, if I can keep going for a little bit longer, the reality is in my country, we have what is a population of about 65 million people. And we have about 700,000 people who are engaged in the world of education, which is just over 1%. And that 1% are responsible for teaching and training all the young people to enter this community of the other 99%. When you think about it, that's a bit crazy, isn't it? Well, I personally think it is. I mean, that's uh, they are responsible for the future of yeah. the people and the country and society, aren't they? Yeah, they are indeed. And it would be, it'd be quite nice if they were more representative of society. And the dreadful thing in my country 
is that in the state school system, one has to be a qualified teacher to teach kids. But in the private sector, no such qualifications are needed. So arguably, there is a wider breadth of education in the private sector than there is necessarily in the state sector. That doesn't mean there are some outliers, but the generality of it is that too often kids are taught by teachers. And unless they're in an environment where they have a wide range of opportunities being given to them, they may gradually close themselves down and think that examinations are the absolute be all and end all. Or if they don't think they can do very well, they can actually say, well, it's a little hope for me, which is a terrible waste of talent. So, and um, what exactly do you do in that field or which I guess it's various things that you're doing? Yeah. I mean, it sounds, it, you know, it sounds a bit simple, but like many others, I'll go into a school and give a keynote about opportunities in the world and all, you know, the usual sort of things which people do. But then the, the, the major interventions which I've had is when I've taken students to meet with just ordinary people, you know, to meet with people who are running their own organizations or are working in big organizations or working in small organizations, just so the students can meet other people. But I discovered that, you know, the world of education, students, if you take a bunch of students to meet somebody, they tend to sit there and expect this person to teach them. And I say, look, you've got to ask them questions. You've got to find out. And I also discovered that a lot of students don't know how to do that because in schools, certainly in my country, students aren't really encouraged to ask too many questions. It's sort of like challenging the teacher, you know, so very few, very seldom do students say, so, you know, what do you do outside of school? What is your background? What have you done before? If you weren't being a teacher, what would you do? They don't ask those sorts of questions. So they don't really know their teachers very well. They know their teachers as somebody who teaches maths. And they don't assume that their maths teacher has an interest in music or once upon a time was a great artist and they just decided to be a maths teacher. They just don't know. So there's an awful lot of people in schools who've got fantastic talents, but they've harnessed themselves, they've confined themselves into subject areas. So to digress, if I take a bunch of students to meet people, I discovered that a dozen students is about right because most people, you know, I say, I'll bring a hundred students to you. They go, whoa. Forget it. And, and if I just take students to meet one person or two people in one organization, students tend to think, oh, gosh, that is how business works. So I go to four or five on the same day who are completely different. And then students go, gosh, there's no right or wrong way, is there? There's no definitive this is how you should be. And what's fascinating is when you take students to meet a professional accountant or then go and to meet a dancer on the stage, And then you go and have lunch with a great restaurateur and then maybe go to a hotel to see how they how the hotelier operates and then maybe go to a tech company and meet somebody in real tech what students discover is that it's a combination of the knowledge which you have but your ability to converse with people the the soft the so-called soft skills which are really hard to get examined in and get marks for are the things which are critical it's a combination It's you as a person, your ability to communicate, your ability to make things happen, your ability to use the knowledge which you've got, which makes you into a, into a great individual and not just your ability to pass an exam or to, or to talk about that exam. And so sadly, we don't necessarily in the academic system value those soft skills as much as maybe we should. We don't have an exam in being a nice person. We don't have an exam in being able to encourage others to do great things for themselves. We don't have a, an exam in creativity. And these are all the things which, you know, those are the key skills for success later on in life, as well as the ability to use the knowledge you've got. If you just have knowledge, but you don't know how to use it. I don't know if there's much, much use in that knowledge which you've got, unless you're very lucky and find somebody who can exploit the knowledge which you have. So that's roughly what I do. Uh, and then, you know, the really great thing is to get students to share that knowledge with others, because then they realize that actually, yeah, you know, they become more confident. They, they start realizing, they start valuing the skills which they've got and the knowledge which they've got. And once people start valuing themselves and valuing the knowledge they've got, they become more confident in the future. And, you know, I think, I think more students should 
have the skills and the aspirations and the confidence about themselves. That's what I do. And please tell us why do you do why do you do that? Why do you do what you do? Hmm. Well, I suppose it goes back. I, I had a difficult childhood. My father was a violent man. My mother was very small. He's uh, beat my mum and me for no necessary reason. And I got I got saved by my grandmother. That's my father's mother who took me to live with her and my mother who got brain damaged in some of the attacks and. And through my time at school, I, I sort of had these two lives. I had one life where I pretended that everything at home was really lovely. And outside, I was sort of, gosh, you know, what is going to happen? But because we had no money, I realized I've got to do everything myself. And I think I was lucky, actually. I think I was probably the thing. Some of my friends were very complacent. They lived in nice homes. They lived with great families. And so they didn't really do very much. Me, I didn't. So I had to. And I think that I think that helped me. And then I started recognizing that a lot of people have got a huge amount of talent and just don't realize it. So some of the years later, when, when I'm a chartered accountant, which was entirely an accident why I became one, and then I became director of recruitment for a, a firm, and I was going around seeing, meeting students who wanted to be recruited into, into our firm. <clears throat> it was a big firm. And I realized that there are some students who are supremely well qualified. God, no pizzazz to them and others have got loads of pizzazz but they don't have the qualifications to get through the recruitment process and i think this is just crazy um so let's see if i can solve those those few things and then then i joined the sort of the corporate world from a world of the big accounting firms um and students were inviting me to go to their countries and talk to them and uh, i discovered that the, a lot of students like to like to hear those words and, and like to be challenged because they also realize that soft skills are important. They also realize that maybe they need to spend a bit more time working out what they can do with the knowledge they've got. And then, and then some years later, quite recently, well, seven years ago, I had a, I had a stroke. Funnily enough, I was at a conference, which I had opened the conference and I was going to do the closing keynote at the conference. And over lunch, I had a stroke. And so I went back into the room to deliver my closing keynote and I couldn't talk properly. And I was fortunate and the, the organizer sort of said, gosh, Marcus, there's something really badly wrong. And in hospital, I'd had a stroke. I had a, a brain hemorrhage, which is uh, where blood just has got nowhere to, to go. And so it just fills up your brain and gradually squishes it. And, and in my time at hospital, so I, I had to learn how to walk and talk again. Well, talk sensibly. A lot of people were saying, oh, a lot of people in his condition make a near normal recovery in about a year. And I was thinking, God, yeah, you know, that's heck of a long time. And I'm, I've been asked to do the opening keynote for the National Association of Head Teachers in 14 days' time. I'm not going to cancel it. I just have to work out how am I going to do it? And a lot of medical professionals were saying, well, that's just not possible. You know, forget it. So, so I realized that a lot of medical professions have never had a stroke. They've, they've observed other people with strokes and everything which, which, they're bought, which they're basing their assessment on how long will it take for me to recover is based upon what other people have done. And you know, if everybody gets told it takes a year to recover, they go, oh, well, it takes a year then, I'll just sign off for a year. No, I'm not gonna sign off for a whole year. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna see what I can do. And do you know what was really interesting is that is that the meetings I was having with the consultants, we were getting more and more trainee doctors into the audience. And it was almost like a training session. I think because you know, I'm reasonably articulate and I could describe what it was like. And so, yeah, of course I gave the opening keynote for the National Association of Head Teachers 14 days later, but my goodness, it was a little bit of a struggle in just the basic, basic things that we have in my country, we have paper tickets and we have you know, RFID card, you know, proximity readers. And the previous day I'd run a test and I'd used a paper ticket. And so I then tried to push this card into the, into the paper ticket. And I had to just, all my paradigms had gone. And I was colorblind and I couldn't talk properly. And I, I lost my ability to do really quick mental arithmetic. Some of it's come back. I've got some workarounds. My eyes were all over the place. But I delivered the keynote, and uh, it was only at the end of it I said, "Look, I'm sorry if it wasn't very good. I don't know. You know, I'm sorry if it wasn't very good. You know, I had a stroke four weeks ago, and, and uh, or 14 days ago, and they all went, "Wow, my goodness!" and uh, place erupted.
And then they asked me to do it again uh, um, about a month later. It was a heck of a lot better. So I think people saw. But I think think when I was in hospital, a lot of people just consigned themselves to the fact it's going to take about a year or about a year and a half. And I think that's what happens in school. Some kids get told, you know, you're not going to be very successful. And they just, well, I won't be very successful. And I, I think we get very easily influenced by experts who tell us things. I mean, teachers say you're not very clever. Or experts who say it takes a year to recover, so take a year. Or parents who say, you know, you're a waste of space. Or or friends who say, forget education, you know, go sell drugs. Or we get very easily influenced. And it's quite hard, I think, for... I think in, in our society, Western society, and I'm talking really about the UK and a bit about the United States and Australasia, it's very easy to start believing this stuff and 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 then and then we we have a world where people a lot of people go to work doing a job they don't like and they don't do it very well and they they do it because they they want to explore themselves in their free time and maybe what would be nice if we could all make use of each other's talents and genuinely make the world a better place uh, but certainly live more fulfilling lives so gosh that sounds almost religious doesn't it? i don't i don't mean to but um but i think we all have a duty to ourselves and to each other to make the most of our talents because the one given is that we're we're only here for a limited amount of time in this space and time and let's make the most of it and ideally let's leave some sort of positive mark of our very existence so that's why i do it Xerxes, that's a hell of a long answer and a terrible ramble i'm sorry about that but i, I think that's it so the stroke made a made a it sort of like kick-started me a little bit more so I love working with uh, students who everybody thinks, I don't know, I don't, these, these won't be successful. And sometimes they think of themselves. That's my long answer to a short question. <laughs> Thank you for elaborating on that. It was very, it is very inspiring. And you, obviously that, that has a strong connection to what you do today, so the way, way I perceive it. And uh, so you talk a lot about paradigms that exist now in the education system and not only in the education system in general i think in society what you talk about so what paradigms do you think uh, need to be challenged you talked a bit about it but like really if you can name the different things that you really think are key that need to be challenged and and transformed to a better future well you know i i got involved with the TED community by accident when I started. I got asked to give a talk at TEDx in Vilnius some years ago. And the, I didn't know what TEDx was. And I flew into Vilnius and was met by a couple of people who whisked me into the auditorium. And I suddenly I realized, gosh, this is, this is like a real thing. Um, and now I, I host a, a number of TEDx's and I coach TEDx speakers. And the one thing which I've discovered is that at the end of the day, you know, people are jolly nice and they've got lots of great ideas and they really like sharing them. But we get very easily dismissed into this single word of which defines you. You know, you're an architect, you're a lawyer, you're a tech person. And it's sort of like, that's what you've always been and that's what you're always going to be. And the more we realize that, that you know, there are some scientists who are really great musicians who... We're, we're going to be doctors or have been doctors who've turned into something else or we we suddenly realize it's terribly terribly fluid you know the fact that i speak english um doesn't mean that this is me you know maybe if i was brought up in a different country the same piece of flesh would be speaking a different language with uh, a different cultural feel so maybe we have to realize that actually there are lots of cultures around let's see what cultures there are let's see what countries there are let's see what everything there is um, and the paradigm, which I, which I, which I think is crazy, is when people start defining themselves, and they define themselves as Scottish, and the Scottish need to change from the English, and so we'll separate. Or you know, I'm I'm Belarus, and and we need to stop all this stuff with with what's going. I think with this very recently there was that that incident of an aircraft which was effectively on its way from Athens to Vilnius in Lithuania, which got diverted into Belarus, so that at Minsk, so that two guys, one guy and his girlfriend could be taken on and arrested. And you think, what is going on? 
Um, and and so you know, you're a journalist, you're a criminal. Well, come on, we don't we don't need to define this this horrible thing of trying to define people in single words. I think is crazy. Um, and because of that, we start defining ourselves based around that. You know, I'm an architect. I can't possibly be an accountant or I'm a uh, or whatever. And if you just think about single words, definitions, we can quite often start assigning a sex to it. You know, so I'm a techno tech. Uh, I'm into technology. And in people's minds, they go, "All oh, right, so you must be a guy." I'm an engineer. I'm a car mechanic. All right, so you're you're a guy. Um, I'm a dressmaker. Oh, so you're a girl. Um, I'm a cook. Oh, gosh. Okay, so we have male and female chefs, but. Um, are you a chef or a cook? <laughs> if you cook, you're a girl, and if you're a chef, oh, maybe you're a guy. And we have this crazy set of definitions. I speak Swahili, all right, so you must be black. Um, I speak Arabic, all right, so you must be you must be uh, brownish color. And 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 we start this crazy set of assessments when we meet people. And you can see that in my country when people apply for jobs and they have names which people are assessing immediately what the person looks like. Are they tall, short, male, female, or whatever? And that def defines them and, and opens up opportunities or not opportunities, which is crazy. So my name is Marcus Orlovsky. People can't quite work that one out because it is it is romantic, but it's also so so I get away with it. But Marcus, so I'm clearly a guy. But but people are very keen to define single word definitions and those paradigms of the assumptions which people make about each other. My goodness, it takes time to, to break those mindsets sometimes. And you know, we do that in seconds. So you can be, you can be, I do this with students sometimes, and I just show them a face and, and say, do, do you think this is a nice person? And just on the basis of a, just a momentary glance, they go, mm, I don't think I like them. And, and we do that as we meet people. We assess people terribly quickly. We don't give people a chance. What is that work of Harvard University? It's uh, you know, seven seconds. That's all you've got. Gosh, really? Are we that quick in judging people? Um, so, I, I, uh, if if I could change, is to say, let's not be so judgmental about each other. Let's not try and put people into these crazy boxes. So, you're Muslim, so phew, you must be a terrorist. What? Really? You're Irish, you must be in the IRA. What? Really? You're Russian. Oh, I don't trust Russians. What? <laughs> bonkers, bonkers, crazy, crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And my experience is also uh, what happens is when you get confronted with uh, some, uh, call it unconscious bias like this, is that in certain contexts, suddenly you start to even behave like this, although you're not that per person. You get into this kind of uh, projection where you start to behave in a certain way, which is not your way of behaving. Have you had this type of experiences with the people you've worked with? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So kind of my, my experience is that people start to resignate because often no matter how they actually act, this projection onto them is so strong that the people who project it onto them, they won't let go of it. And then they just like resignate and they act in this way, you know, so kind of, I mean, it's not always like that, but it's, uh, I've seen, I've seen this a lot. So it's, it's kind of interesting. You know, it can happen very without, without even realizing it. I, I was fascinated in the with um, the firm I was at. It was EY, so it's a big firm of uh, financial advisors, quarter of a million people around the world. And when you take um, someone when they first start, you know, so they're they're new, they don't really know how things get done around here. And if they do a paper for somebody senior, and they give it to the senior person, there's almost invariably going to be some things which aren't very good in it almost invariably, um, or at least not to the reviewer's taste. You know, maybe they've used the wrong language, they've used the wrong words, they've used the wrong color, you know, silly things. And then the reviewer will mark it or do some adjustments and send it back. And then that person will give it back. And if, if that hasn't all been adjusted to the satisfaction of that person, then, then what happens is that the junior person starts thinking, oh, this senior person is, going to correct everything. And the senior person will immediately realize that this junior person on basis of two bits of information is not very good at doing stuff. And that sets that relationship, you know, and, and that relationship continues for a long, long time. 
but just because of the very first thing which has happened in the very first day. And then they start playing to that. So therefore, in a year's time, that junior person knows that the senior person is going to correct everything anyway. So there's no point in really going to a super duper effort because they're going to correct it anyway. And uh, and the senior person then realizes they have to correct it <laughs> because and the whole thing just self-perpetuates. And sometimes they haven't had the conversation. They haven't had the conversation about, so why do you correct it? Well, because you make mistakes. Well, which mistakes do you not like? I don't mm. like that one. Are you writing green ink? I'd prefer you to write in black. <laughs> if you just told me, I'd have, I'd have changed it. And I, and I think that goes that goes in a lot of cases, you know. It can happen in school. The very first day, if you were late to school, on your very first day, and the teacher goes, you're late, and you go, yeah, who, who cares anyway? It's only school. <laughs> you know, poof, you're the troublemaker, and you'll be the troublemaker forever. And all the time, people are going to, that teacher is going to remember that you're the troublemaker, and they'll tell their friends. And and the same thing can happen to you, you know, with your teachers. There's, there's a teacher, and on the first day they weren't very nice to you for whatever reason. Maybe they had a bad day, you know. They just snapped at you. Then that then that continues, and I think that happens everywhere we go. We 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 start building up these mind pictures, these assumptions, and and I, I sometimes get people to challenge it themselves, you know, and I'll say, Have you ever been to a restaurant? and had a meal which was fabulous, and you tell your friends, this is a great restaurant, you should go there. Now that's based upon the evidence of one meal on one day with one team of cooks and chefs. And then you might go again and the meal is dreadful. Do you then go in your mind, right, so I went to a bad restaurant which had a good day and got a great meal or is this a great restaurant which has somehow got a bad day the vast majority of people i think say gosh i wonder what happened it's usually so good <laughs> and then you go again and how many times do you have to go to that restaurant before you realize it was a bad restaurant and just on your first day you had a good day on the other hand, if you go to a restaurant, and you have a bad meal, do you ever go again? So maybe you never realized it was a great restaurant, just happened to have a bad day. And I think I think that's the reality. It's very hard for us to break away from that. You know, we, we take a snapshot decision, we extrapolate it, that's what it is. And it takes a bit of time before we before we reassess. So we're gathering information all the time, we're making snap decisions, we're putting it into our memory banks, we, we're using this as our piece of AI which we then apply to everything else. You know, it's, it's a learned mechanism, it's a learned experience, and it's a learned response. And then we apply that same thing. And so by accident, we have a bias which is developed subconsciously, but becomes very difficult to change. Definitely, definitely. I have the experience that I think many people perhaps, but maybe not so conscious, that when you get taught something, and that's from a certain teacher at university or at school or outside of school in further education. And it, this is the first time you get to introduce to a certain field of topic that this is the standard that if you like the teacher, if you dislike, then you will challenge it from the beginning. But if you like and trust the teacher, this is what you will compare everything else with that you learn afterwards, even if it's uh, not right what he taught you. Not necessarily on purpose he didn't write, uh, teach you the right thing. Maybe his, 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 the science it's based on is outdated or wh whatever it is. But I've seen that a lot with the people on the very subconscious level that uh, it's not just the first impression, but it's also the first, um, it goes deeper, like the first teaching. It's not like the first, uh, could be something that you get as an input over many months, not only the very first impression, that of course, obviously, as well. And I find this interesting because there's never a guarantee that someone you trust uh, has the best information. You know, we like to 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 believe the people we trust uh, because they're trustworthy, the people. But still, they can be wrong as well. And I've seen that a lot, and I've seen it in myself. That uh, actually, what I base my paradigms on is always uh, what I've learned from people I trusted. Which, but doesn't mean that uh, it is the right thing necessarily. So, just to to add to that, yeah, which doesn't mean they were dishonest with you. Exactly, it doesn't mean that they were 
you know deliberately it's just they didn't know and they did their very best yes um it's, it's interesting sometimes so for it so i give a lot of presentations and i've discovered my style and my style is humorous so it can be serious at times and i might alternate so if i go serious and people realize well, this is a serious bit because usually it's fairly light loose but it's always factual and truthful in every way and i'll never i'll never say something which isn't true which i know to be true as far as i can and i remember once being when i wasn't too comfortable with myself i didn't know what my style was i I, I used to watch these programs of people giving amazing lectures standing in one place, you know, doing it. And I thought, I can't do that. I'm just no good at it. And I went on a course on how to present. And the person got two chairs and put them apart from me, got me to stand on these two chairs, one leg over here, one leg over there, which would force me not to be able to move otherwise I'd fall off. And I was terrible at it. And they said, if you want to be able to present, you have to stay in one place, you mustn't fiddle with pens. You mustn't fiddle with things. You should keep the same eye contact and turn and talk to different people. You should be well prepared. You should rehearse it. You should do everything. If I try to do that, it's terrible. It just doesn't work. And so what some person says, this is the way you should do things, actually is this is the way I've discovered works for me. You have to discover what works for you. And it's exactly the same. When I was at school, so I, I, I am quite quick with mathematics and images and design. I'm quite fast. But I don't know why this is the answer. I can see the answer, but I can't tell you why very easily, you know? And at school, I used to be told, you're just guessing. You're just lucky guesses. You know, you had 99 lucky guesses out of 99 tasks. <laughs> And it's the same. I, so I'm not very good at writing poetry, you know. So when I write poetry, I have to do it in the conventional way of step by step by step. And it's rubbish. And some people can take a hundred words and go away for three minutes and it comes back and it's beautiful to read. And I say, why did you do this order? I don't know. It seemed right. So, so if I try to learn from you how to do stuff so it seems right. <laughs> God, I don't know how to do it. But equally well, I can't teach you how I concede numbers and work it out because I, I don't quite know how I do it. So when you force me to have to, to say how I did it, I I find it really hard. And so and so I think I think a lot of people are get caught in all of that. And the worst thing is is when you look at somebody who is excellent and you go, my goodness, they're so good. I can never be like that. And we don't realize they've just gone through a series of, of learning things to discover that this is what works for them. And maybe if we, if we all realized that, we wouldn't be so frustrated. You know, my goodness, I think, I think the world is full of people who watch other people on YouTube or wherever else and get dissatisfied with themselves. You think, oh, if only I could do that. Oh, I'm no good at this. I'm no good at that. I remember talking to um, talking to somebody and I said, do you play the piano? And they said, no. And I said, why not? And they said, I just can't do it. I said, well, did you try? Yeah, I tried learning when I was five. Pfft, couldn't do it. Can't do it now. And I remember this crazy conversation. I said, well, when you were five, how big were your fingers? And they said, well, they were little tiny, tiny little sausage fingers. I said, how big are they now? These huge things. I said, well, how do you know? <laughs> you know, you're very different. Um, mind you, I find it quite hard to play the piano as well, but, but, but I, it's not a very good example, but I, I think we're very, we're very quick to, to judge ourselves. We're very quick to make these, I, I, I do you know, I'm saying the same old stuff again, aren't I? I'm sorry. I'm getting terribly boring. Oh no, <laughs> it's perfect. I mean, I actually fully agree with you and I, my, my impression is, and I guess you, 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 that's basically what you also say is that uh, judgment kills uh, creativity, judgment kills talent, judgment kills um, the ability to unfold. Mm. And we have a school system in most countries, as far as I'm aware, that is based on judgment. 
which is an irony because it's the very thing that actually uh, disables the potential of people. This is how I feel. <laughs> I guess it's what we basically you are saying as well. And and it gets worse because I think we imprison people in their own inadequacies. So I remember the first time I I met somebody who <clears throat> now who was this chap? He was a a very senior manager, very senior at a really big international organization. And I said, um, do you do you do you really like it here? I, I, you see, the way I said that indicates what I was expecting the answer to be. So, do you like it here? And it, he clearly said, no, it's a job. And I said, well, would you prefer to do something else? Oh, yeah. I said, well, why don't you? He said, because in another 15 years, I will qualify for the executive pension scheme. And I remember thinking, 15 years? You are going to consign yourself to doing a job which doesn't excite, to spending your time, your your waking decent hours doing something you don't like, because in 15 years time, if you're still alive, you will be able to draw an executive pension. My goodness, that's terrible. And I didn't want to say it to him, but I think there are a lot of people who just resign themselves to doing something they don't like to waste their lives on the basis that once they retire, they can do something. But, but I don't know if, if they, they'll ever de-imprison themselves. And sometimes I meet people who got made redundant, you know, their company went bust, they got fired, whatever happened. And I've often, I've often found them saying, oh, I got made redundant, best thing which could ever happen to me, I redesigned my life. You go, well, isn't it sad that you had to wait till somebody else makes the decision for you to for you to make your own decisions? You know, you have to be denied the opportunity of continuing to do the job you don't like. God, that's terrible. I fully agree. I fully agree. And sometimes it has to be from the outside. Sometimes people just don't see for a long time or they don't have the courage for some reason or they feel the confines of whatever it is. You, you know, it could be they have credits running, that there's some family things, you know, like people they need to take care of and stuff like that. So, so and then they feel like they are not allowed even. And then again, I feel like these are the personal paradigms and dogmas that keep us from basically living, living the life uh, that is really our life and authentic life. So there's often, but this, these type of things, but also I like when you said 15 years uh, for some executive pension for me also the first thing is like you're doing 15 years of time mm. <laughs> in prison to maybe one day have this pension and as you said you don't know maybe the company goes bust uh, whatever else happens maybe you're not alive and it's just sad because my impression is in a lot of contexts that the real potential that people have I mean, or let's put it a different way how, how, how what is the percentage of people who know what their potential is and live their potential? Well, the, the truthful answer is how will we know what our potential is until we try everything? And there's not enough time to try everything. Exactly. So generally, I think what we all do by accident is what we think we're best at is most likely what we are least bad at. So I do a number of things. I'm not very good at that. I'm not very good at that. I'm not very good at that. I'm good at this. So that's what I'm best at. Now, if I try something else, I might find I'm much better at that than I am good at this. <laughs> and unless I give myself the opportunity of trying different things and allowing myself to try different things, I may never discover what I'm best at. And sometimes it takes other people to say, but you're really good at this. <laughs> and maybe we just don't value them enough. We don't value the people who are trying to help us enough. But fundamentally, I believe that the chances are that what we think we're best at is most likely what we are least bad at. And uh, when we look at it like this is what I'm least bad at, it almost begs the question of well, what else might you be better at, as opposed to this is what I'm good at, which is sort of like quite a final statement. What I'm least bad at is sort of like a continuum. What I'm best at is ending the conversation. So. I'm least bad at talking to people. I'm least bad at entertaining students in their, where their futures might be. I'm least bad at helping people to be 
great speakers on the TED stage. I'm least bad at hosting TEDx's. I don't know what I'm good at yet. Okay. Well, I mean, one thing that I, I always like to tell people is, uh, oh, let, let's put it another way. What I realize is that often people, they think they're, um, as you said, good at some certain thing. And it's, it's, it's at least one thing they're at least bad at. But uh, what, what really is often the talent of people is what is really easy to them. And they get really annoyed when it's not easy for other people, because to them, it's so easy. And this is why I say, well, it's your talent. When you see that it's really easy for you, but for no one else, and you get annoyed by it, why no one else sees it or understands it or does it, then you can be pretty sure that this is your talent. And people often associate their talent with something that is really hard and they've mastered. But that could also, the talent could be involved in that. But talent is really what is really easy to us, not really hard to us. You know? And then we might have um, mastered it to perfectionize it. Okay, that's a different thing, you know. So yeah, that's that's uh, that's quite quite interesting to see. Like uh, I often see it in other people that they actually they they don't realize at all what their talents are. So and perhaps also myself and including yourself. Do you know what's even worse than that? Sorry, it's not even worse. I don't. I don't mean to say it like that. Quite often, when people are really good at something. And they, they have that natural talent. They have that talent, whether it's natural or it's developed or howsoever they ended up with that talent. And they're with people who find it impossible to do that. Rather than think, gosh, that's my talent, they might be tempted to think those people are stupid. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, this um, is what I mean. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So, yeah. so it's not recognizing my skill set. Exactly. It is, it is actually recognizing the deficiencies in other people against my skill set, which may not be the right thing to say. Is that you're, you're just stupid. Everybody here is stupid. Yeah. <laughs> They're not. So how do you think that the corona pandemic, what impact does it have on education? Because there's definitely changes that, that it will have in all different areas and also how it has... Uh, Education has been treated now with the pandemic, with homeschooling and everything. So what do you see emerging through the corona pandemic? Well, I think I think the pandemic is potential has the potential for making a bit of a structural change in the way we operate. Until now, close proximity of people on in an office, in the theater. In, a, in an aircraft, in a school, was necessary in order to have good communication for people to be able to learn from each other and discover and share a great experience. And that's why we started building big offices and people left their homes and spent time to get to their office and go to work because that's where there are people around and that's where I can work best. That's why we took kids from their homes and grouped them together in places called schools so that we could teach them better. I think we're now discovering that sometimes I work better from home. And I remember, I remember in the early days when people would say to me, I think I'm going to work from home. My natural thought process was, uh, <laughs> taking the day off sort of thing. Because we didn't have the technology at home to be able to continue work. We, you know, working, there was home and work. There was home and school. And the divider was probably access to resources. So the office is where I got resources, other people, technology. School is where I got resources. What, what the pandemic has done, it's highlighted the fact that we have transferable resources. So I'm at home in Wimbledon. I'm talking to you in Vienna. We are on a screen. We're having a conversation. And, and I didn't need to spend the time to go to Vienna to have this short conversation with you. Now, I can see you and I, can, I, know, I know how you are because we've met. If we haven't met, maybe this wouldn't be so, such a good, a good discussion. But what the pandemic has done in the world of education, it's sort of demonstrated that you can learn from home without having to be in school and you can learn stuff. Can you feel the stuff? Can you, can you get the soft skills? Can, can you, so for students to, 
to for young people to live in the world where accumulating people together is really important because it's shared experiences and we separate that we are potentially growing individual people who develop themselves in isolation of this community type learning because it's on a screen i don't know what the ultimate impact is going to be when we go back into when we go back if we go back into more communal activities i don't think we've yet discovered that but i can already see in my country when schools reopen there have been a lot of parents and a lot of students actually who have been nervous about going back to school because of the proximity of other people because of the potential of catching coronavirus and so even though one's saying it's perfectly safe everybody's been been uh, <clears throat> immunized and they've all had their inoculations i think there's something here which is saying well i don't know if i trust that because you know Maybe I've been vaccinated against a virus, but maybe there's another one coming out. So we've got a, we've potentially done something very damaging to young people where they are missing out on the development of the social skills, which are necessary. And how do you talk? How do you communicate with people who at first sight, you don't, you don't think you'll like, you know, that judgmental thing. And it's, it's in school where you have rich people and poor people and yellow people and black people and put them all together as we, we grow that multicultural, multi-age, although within limitations of ages, you know, approach to life. If we start segregating people by putting them around their screens, maybe we're missing that. And, and as we are doing more and more on screen, we can't see how big you are, how tall you are. We don't know because everybody's sort of like the same sort of size, which is roughly a head and shoulders, which fits into the confines of the of the box which I'm in. So I don't know. So I think I think with students, what we're what with young people, and in those formative ages, I think it's it's the five, six, and sevens years old, which I'm more concerned about, and the yeah. twos to fours, which I'm much more well, twos to fours aren't doing so yeah. much in that way. Um, much less concerned about 16, 17, 18 year olds. Yeah. Um <clears throat> But the other thing um, in the world of education is that is that students aren't in in, my, in 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 our schools. The students aren't getting exposure to the sort of the world of people outside on a at an at a really seriously intellectual type level. You know, we we have things called work experience where where students go out to places of work and do stuff. That's all stopped. So it's virtual. It's not the same. You know. Um, so I think I think potentially we have a slightly damaged grouping of people, the COVID, the COVID kids. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's, it, it may have more lasting effects than we think. We've got a slight growth of mental health issues in the, in our country, primarily because of the lack of socialization, I guess. Well, definitely. I mean, there's, um, there's a study in Austria showing I th the numbers really high that the teenagers, I think, uh, fourteen and above, like the 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 percentage of teenagers that think of suicide has risen enormously over the last year. Uh, the, the number is really, I think, I don't, I, I don't want to say something wrong, but I think it's around twenty percent or thirty percent. I mean, not that they are seriously suicidal, but they they actually having thoughts, which has been before much much lower. And also when I think I have a 21 month old, uh, girl and I mean, definitely she doesn't have the social exposure that she would have had if she would have gone to, to kindergarten, you know? So, yeah. So it's, uh, that's something that I'm thinking about a lot because it will be the COVID generation, the, the little kids, um, that will have a very different type of social interaction that we are used to because we were just used to in this crucial times of our personal development um, to have social, much more social, real life social interaction. And uh, for some even social interaction at all, other than to the parents, for example. So let's see what happens. But like in every situation, um, there's always, always also upsides to, to situations. So it will be very interesting to see in 20 years from now how we will look back uh, at this whole situation and what has developed out of it. So I'm quite yeah. curious. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be fascinating. What's yeah. going to be really fascinating in 20 years time is when you and your daughter are talking to young kids and they're saying, Whoa, lockdown. 
what is that? Oh, I've read about that in the books. <laughs> you go, oh, I was there. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely we whole, live at this time. Whole generation. Yeah. I mean, this is uh, extraordinary times. So, But when we go now uh, 100 years into the future, when you teleport yourself 100 years from now into the future, and people talk about you and think about you, how, how would you want to be remembered 100 years from now? Or what for? I'd like to say that people thought I was a good guy who helped a lot of other people and maybe helped some people discover themselves. Um, yeah, that sort of thing. <clears throat> That's what I think. Great. Thank you very much. I'm pretty sure this will happen. Marcus, <laughs> if I die sooner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much for this beautiful conversation. And well, well thank you for inviting me onto it. Thank you very much. And my uh, pleasure. Hope to see you again on my show. Bye bye. Yeah, thank you. Goodbye. Thank you for staying tuned for this edition of Challenging Paradigm X. If you like this episode with Markus Orlovsky, feel free to share it with your community so Markus' message gets spread even further. In the show notes, you will find the links to his work. Please hit subscribe and rate my podcast if you liked it. I'd also be glad if you write me a review. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact me. Next week, we're up with another edition of Challenging Paradigm X. Until then, I wish you a great week.